Talking Feds is sponsored by our friends at Total Wine & More, rewarding curious connoisseurs with a wondrous selection of wine, spirits, and beers. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government, law, and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman, and this is our quarterly review of the state of play at the Department of Justice. Merrick Garland has been the nation's attorney general for some eight months, and while his leadership and approach to the job may have remained fairly steady, political winds have swirled around him in different directions. The department finds itself taking heat from a range of critics, most notably the chief judge of the D.C. District Court. Focused on its supposed lackluster pursuit of the January 6th insurrectionists, up to and including, perhaps, former President Trump and his circle. Members of Congress, who in a very real way were the victims of the crimes of January 6th, are quietly griping over the department's arm's-length approach to issues that involved them. In other areas, Garland has moved to put his stamp on the department, announcing new policies for cybercrime, white-collar prosecutions, and drugs on the dark web. And John Durham, whom Bill Barr appointed as a special counsel to investigate the investigators, that is, the FBI's decision in 2016 to look into Trump and Russia, continues to putter around the department assembling what in the previous administration Republicans disparaged as process crimes of lying to investigators. And we have our regular panel of DOJ files to dole out the tough love on Merrick Garland and his 100,000-plus employees. And they are, of course, Katie Benner, who covers the Department of Justice for the New York Times. In 2018, she was part of a team that won a Pulitzer Prize for public service for reporting on workplace sexual harassment issues. Previously, she worked at the Times' San Francisco Bureau covering Apple, venture capital, and startups. And she was a tech columnist for Bloomberg and spent nearly a decade at Fortune. Katie, thanks so much for coming back for our latest DOJ-focused episode. Thanks for having me. Matt Miller, a partner at Novo and former director of the Office of Public Affairs for the Department of Justice. He is a justice and security analyst for MSNBC. He's written for numerous publications. Matt's worked in leadership positions in both the U.S. House and Senate, serving as communications director for the House Democratic Caucus and for Senator Charles Schumer at the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. Matt, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. And Andrew Weissman, the new, nearly new, since we last were together, legal officer at McAndrews and Forbes Holding Company and a professor of practice with the Center on the Administration of Criminal Law at NYU Law School. He served as a lead prosecutor in Robert Mueller's special counsel's office, and was the chief of the criminal fraud section in the Department of Justice, among many positions that he held within the department. Andrew, good to see you. Nice to be here. All right, let's begin with the department's investigation of the January 6th insurrection, because it feels as if the heat is getting turned up on Merrick Garland in particular from a number of sources. 
Senate Democrats, federal judges, including the chief judge of the D.C. court, journalists, the general public. And the charges seem to be he's moving too slow and going too easy. Do you see any merit to the criticism? And do you see any likelihood that it will have the slightest effect on the department's work? Without weighing in on the merits of the arguments and the criticisms, I do not think it's going to have any impact on the department's work or on Garland's response. I've been told that he's become more cognizant of criticism and he's becoming a better political actor, but he's not going to pick up the pace just because people think that he's going too slow. I'd like to weigh in just on the criticism that's coming from the bench, because I do think that at the department, you listen to other criticism, but you also can take it with a grain of salt when it may be partisan or you have to evaluate that when it's coming from Congress. Not that that other means you don't take it seriously, but sometimes it really is just a partisan lobbying in of an issue that's not real. But when it comes from the bench, you, I think, need to take it seriously. And particularly when it's the chief judge of the D.C. court, which Beryl Howell is. And she is also thoughtful and smart. Now, granted, she does not see, because it's not that one judge sees everything. On the other hand, the judges are a close-knit group. They do talk. And any one judge does see at least a spectrum of cases. And I think that what I understand from her criticism is a concern about uniformity in how cases are being treated. and how certain cases appear to be treated more leniently than others and without a sufficient rationale being given to the court. And so without weighing in on any specific case, I think those are things that the department does need to take seriously. And one function that I think is really important for this Department of Justice, especially given the history under the Trump administration, is to be more transparent with what it's doing, not to give up the executive branch's prerogative, but to be open to criticism where there are failures to address it, and then to be much more open about why this is being done in this situation. Because presumably, you are saying this is the right thing, and so you should be able to articulate that to the court. And let me just amplify a little bit what Howell has done. First, it's noteworthy that she comes from Congress. She knows the halls and where the conflagration went down. But it was it's not just consistency and transparency. I think part of her indictment, and it was harsh, and you have to know that she thought it through. This is just not a casual statement that you just let go on the bench, is that the department was being schizophrenic, by which I believe she meant talking a tough game in the characterization of what the defendants did, but then playing it light when it came time for sentencing. So that was harsh and also pretty intrusive coming from the chief judge of the district court. I think it's a very good point. And what I wanted to pick up on was the the question about Congress, where he's getting some criticism from the left uh, from Congress about the investigation so far, focusing only basically on the people that carried out the attack. And this question that the Department of Justice has not answered at all 
appropriately for the most part, I think, about whether they are investigating the former president and other people in the White House. And it's a tough one, right? Usually you expect DOJ not to comment uh, on that type of thing. It's appropriate for the department not to talk about who it's investigating. And so it's hard to know whether the criticism they're doing nothing is warranted or not, because we don't know what they are doing. I'm suspicious they're not doing much, but we don't know. You're suspicious. You mean you believe they are doing a lot or you're suspicious that they're not? I suspect they're not. I suspect they don't have a full-fledged criminal investigation into Trump over his comments, but I could be completely wrong. The thing that that makes this, I think, different than other cases, not just the scale of it and the attack on the democracy, but usually I'm with Andrew that you need to listen to criticism for Congress, but really filter it out, know that it's a political institution. The difference here is that Congress was the victim of this attack. And not just the victim and the fact that the members of Congress themselves were the ones chased out of the floor of the House and Senate, but they're there as the representatives of the people carrying out a democratic function. And so I do think you have to filter everything you hear from Congress through that political lens. You also need to treat them differently in this case than you would in any other case, because they are the victims, both as personal representatives who lives were on the line potentially, and as the representatives of democracy. And so I think DOJ, maybe not now, but before too long, owes Congress an answer about what they're doing on the broader scope of the investigation. That's an interesting point. And I think that Howell was sort of saying that as well when she talked about the mismatch between the rhetoric and the defendants so far. Another way of looking at that is Chief Judge Howell saying, listen, if you're going to talk about what a travesty this was and what an attack on democracy it was, you need to deliver the assailants. Right. And you haven't done that so far. So what's going on? Andrew, you've been a supervisor and, I, and probably you've been in the equivalent position, Matt. If something like that had happened when I was U.S. attorney, I would be in the judge's chambers right away for a Soto Voce discussion with you're looking astonished, Andrew Weissman. Yeah. So I was raised in, a, in an environment where that would not happen ex parte. The more like, namby-pamby New York offices, <laughs> right. Yeah, so I do understand that that does happen in places, but that... In the provinces. Yeah, in the provinces. The, the small provinces like Washington. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, small, the small provinces, meaning any office outside of New York. That's just, just to show my inveterate New York quality. Wow. This bias is so intense. <laughs> By the way, Katie, I love saying I'm an inveterate New Yorker because my friends say, really, 10 years in Washington, not an inveterate New Yorker anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I do think when any federal judge, let alone the chief judge, makes a serious criticism, I do think that there is a way to address that that maintains the executive prerogative but is explaining why you're doing what you're doing, which that has been one of my sort of soapbox points when the administration changed was that I thought to build credibility for the department, it is really important to be more transparent where you can be. And this is one where you really can be. Well, that's what I'm saying. Look, I'm not talking about going there and showing a draft indictment. 
but just explaining. And he's done this pretty much in public statements. Actually, I want to go to Matt's point and ask both of you about it. So he suspects, Matt does, that they're not really doing very much. I would have suspected the opposite, that there's no way that the investigation could just go limp once it comes to the higher ups and they have to at least do a full uh, and thorough investigation, which may end nowhere or may end in consultation with the White House, not charging any political actors. But I would think they'd be vigorously looking at it. Do you, in fact, share the suspicion that they're not looking at anyone except the actual insurrectionists and they'll just let it fall after that? Well, one thing I do think that's important to know that Matt referenced, which isn't a direct answer to this question, is in a criminal case, the members of Congress, the staff, the police, they are victims and they have statutory rights. Right. And there is a whole process that is engaged in, you know, I was at the fraud section. We dealt with this all the time because we had so many victims. So there is a whole process where you are supposed to be making sure that victims have notice, have an opportunity to be heard. There's all sorts of rights to be heard at sentencing, to weigh in, and then you want to be communicating with them. So This isn't a question of communicating with the victims just at a congressional hearing. These are victims in a criminal case. So again, that process you think would be getting more attention. And because there's an obligation to speak. And how concretely, Andrew, would you think it might get more attention? I think that if other judges start doing what Judge Howell is doing, yes. And I also think there will be a question of have they complied with all of the victim witness statutes in this case. I think one thing to note on the Justice Department's current pace is that there have been acting people in two key roles, National Security and the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. And I believe as of today, both of those roles have been filled by the Senate confirmed people. So both named Matt. So you know they're good. Right. We have a real bias uh, toward Matt's in the department, apparently. But Matt Olson over at NSD and Matt Graves over at the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. My sense is that nobody's ever closed the books on the idea that people close to the president, people around the White House should be investigated. It's such a political hot potato and it's so sensitive. I mean, when in modern American history, post-war, have we investigated the leaders of one of our dominant political parties. That's so absurd. Not counting 2016, you mean? I say Andrew did it a couple of years ago. And I would say it tore the country apart. So, <laughs> <It's all laughs> just throwing Andrew that out there. Fault. So, yeah, so it's, a com- it's commonplace. Yeah. It happens. Right. <laughs> We're going to do it every four years. There's a difference between investigating and charging. So my assumption has been, from what I know of the department and Garland, that there's almost no way around investigating. You get up to the top level. You don't ask the people, well, what kind of communication did you have with members of Congress or the White House? I, you know, I just I don't see how they could fold their tent at that point. No career person is going to want to take responsibility for the political fallout for making certain investigatory steps. I would think there'd be some who would love it. I really agree with Katie. There are different people with different risk tolerances. and. I think it's true with career and political people that it takes a special person to be like, you know what, I'm just going to do the right thing. And I know I'm going to get 
how to pay from the right, the left, the right and the left. Um, and I will own any mistake. And there are other people who think better to just keep my head down. Yeah. Obviously, some people will totally do the right thing. But I do think it is important to note that you can imagine people just saying, let's just let this play out. And the downside of that is I've always been a career person when I was at the department. And I am perfectly aware that there are cases that really need oversight and you need to move them along. You need to make sure there's uniformity and all sorts of decisions. And the answer can't be just let this play out in the normal course because the normal course may not be as professional and meeting all of the criteria that you really think is appropriate. Fair enough. And and we actually know whoever does it and whatever supervisor guides it, the hell to pay, if there's hell to pay, will be for Garland himself. I wanted to follow up on Katie's sense of his political antenna becoming more fine-tuned. I don't know if you guys saw the article in Slate magazine, but it actually said he, Merrick Garland, bears some blame for the loss in Virginia, and it named a number of actions, including most particularly the school board memo, which Republicans were up in arms about. First of all, that's such a nonsense argument. The thing about losing elections is you can take everything that you didn't like about the administration and uh, ascribe meaning to it. And that's a pretty absurd explanation. Uh, I, I will say, not commenting for a second on whether he's doing well politically or not, when you do start to struggle politically, the White House feels it very strongly. And they feel it more strongly with DOJ than they do with other agencies because they don't feel like they can step in and fix problems at DOJ. They send people over to kind of mind you, but and it's it's tough. They try sometimes. Look, become somewhat public. Janet Reno, Ron Klain, and you're Eric. That's right. And they tried with Eric at one point early on, Eric Holder, and he blew up about it and said, absolutely not. And it was a big fight. What I was going to say, if like HHS or labor blows up, the White House can micromanage the department and know every decision that's made there and try to fix it. They can't do that at justice. And they can't even get into knowing about the the types of controversies that really usually bedevil DOJ, which are controversies about big criminal investigations. And so you're in this place where the White House, when they feel like DOJ is flailing, they get really frustrated because they feel like they can't fix it. And so they will blame it on the people there and it can lead to a very bad relationship and a bad situation. I went through that for a while. I don't think that's what's going on right now. There may be some of it. It may happen down the road. I don't think we're there yet at this point. That would be my sense too. This is the attorney general they wanted for good and for bad. I I think his independence serves them well. I agree that the idea that Merrick Garland caused the Democrats in Virginia is so absurd. Maybe try getting a candidate people like, but beyond that, can we though agree that the school board memo was a disaster? Maybe it's just because I had the misfortune of listening to the Senate Judiciary hearing while I was hungover, so it felt like more of a disaster than it would have if I had been well. (laughs) (laughs) Listening to people screaming had I not had that headache, maybe it wouldn't have seemed like such a... Maybe wasn't the hearing only at 11 (laughs) a.m.? It was at 10, Andrew, it was 10. (laughs) One very smart guy named Matt actually thinks that the department has been not defending strongly enough, no? And he is with us here. I just think that wading into what has become an extremely political topic with a 
weirdly ill thought out rollout that includes like the national security division and the civil rights division, even though the statutes that Garland actually mentioned and pointed to in his hearing have nothing to do with national security or even the civil rights division. That was just entirely bizarre. He couldn't answer questions included. And then in very embarrassing fashion, the U.S. attorney, I think it might have been in Montana, had already sent out messaging to his field about this. And it, somehow Odag had missed it. So Odag wasn't able to inform Garland of it. So when he sat for this hearing where it was pretty obvious based on what had happened in the House the week before that the Republicans were only going to care about one thing, he was unable to answer questions about that. Like I was just like, what's happening? I think it's been a disaster because it's revealed Garland's limitations, unfortunately. I believe, Katie, that he's probably becoming more politically attuned. But only after really upsetting things happen. Well, but being politically attuned and being a political operator are two different things. And I don't mean mm. a political operator in the, the negative sense as a partisan political operator. I mean, in the sense that whether they got some of the, the bureaucratic parts of the memo right, the memo was not only 100% defensible from a policy perspective, it is easily a political winner. It would have been so easy for an attorney general to go up to the Hill and say, as I think I said on this pod a few weeks ago, you know what, Senator, we are very much concerned about violence at school board meetings. We're very much concerned about violence against all sort of elected officials. We saw what happened here on January 6th. And yes, we are going to do whatever we can to stop that kind of violence. And I don't know why you're not joining me in trying to fight violence at school board. I don't know why you're so opposed to the Justice Department trying to stop violence at school board. I guarantee you the vast majority of the American public would agree with what the department's doing. And instead of doing that, he went up there in this defensive crouch and tried to treat the questions as if they were legitimate questions and tried to, oh, we're not looking at speech. Well, they read the memo. They, they, they know your answer. Yeah. They know what's really happening. They're trying to use this for politics. And I thought showed a lack of deafness that he's going to have to develop if he's going to be as successful at that part of, of the job, which is a pretty key part of the job. It'll be interesting to see whether they end up deploying other people who may have that skill set. You know, when I was in the department, there was a general view with respect to who might be better in certain situations and who has more clout. And you could feel it in terms of knowing whose principal was more likely to have to carry the ball on certain things. And so the one thing to keep an eye on is how internally this plays out in terms of who you see potentially carrying the ball on things. That's a good point. Just to close out on the Congress to DOJ relationship. So it has been over two weeks since the criminal contempt referral for Bannon. Any sense what's going on with it inside the department? And is it a surprise that they haven't acted yet? I actually think it's a little bit more complicated than it may appear at first blush in terms of bringing a criminal case where you have to prove mens rea because I think that Steve Bannon's counsel, as I understand it, at least the last I looked at the, the submission, was trying to position Steve Bannon to be sort of a, a neutral party saying, you work this out on the executive privilege issues, and then whatever I need to do, I will do. That is tricky if you are making a decision that there should be a criminal prosecution in that matter. And so I think that could account for why this is going to be sort of not the thing to watch. Yeah. 
it's a losable case. I've previously talked about all the internal hurdles with OLC and the Supreme Court. But as a criminal case, if they bring it and lose, man, that's a lot of egg on the department's face. Matt, when we talked about it before, you had expected, if nothing else, a quick decision. So are you surprised at the timeline? I mean, quick in DOJ terms, right? And there are a couple of weeks, which is like a right. blink of an eye in Justice right. Department terms. It could be several weeks or you know, yeah. uh, even longer than that. Look, I take your point about a losable case. I think it's a case they have to bring ultimately. Because of Congress again. Yeah, because of Congress, the political pressure and just the institutional pressure from Congress after years of having their subpoenas being blown off. And to this point about being a losable case, it was just in the past week that the deputy attorney general went out and gave a big speech about how they weren't going to refrain from bringing white collar cases because they were afraid to lose. If that principle is really true, and look, Department leaders say that all the time, and then it turns out not to be true. They, they don't bring cases because they're afraid of losing. Yeah. <laughs> but if that is true, as she says, then I think the merits ought to lead them to bring this one. It's always a losing proposition to take the other side when Matt speaks, because I'm confident I'm going to be made out to be wrong or a fool or both. <laughs> but here goes. But with great panache. So it's almost worth it. Right. So based on what I know just from the outside, I do think that there are issues about trying to do this criminally. And I could see pursuing this in a civil remedy to get the executive privilege claim litigated quickly. Once that is gone, you go back to Steve Bannon and say, this has now been done. Do you still refuse? In other words, put it to him, the, the position of, oh, if it's resolved, then I will testify. And then if he doesn't, then I think you have a good case. But let's just imagine a a case where there really was a debatable issue about whether, let's say, attorney-client privilege applied. If someone said, you know, my client is happy to testify once that issue is resolved, you would not be, oh, let's just prosecute that person criminally. You would want that resolved first. And so I do think that that is a way to try and deal with this without having the public perception that you're declining to prosecute as opposed to deferring the decision until this issue is resolved. And I think that the department would be inclined if they were to go forth with a criminal prosecution to tailor it so narrowly. I I do think that even though the public doesn't see it this way, and maybe even some people in the White House don't necessarily see it this way, all of the things happening right now legally around the January 6th investigation, we have the potential to erode all of the executive power sort of privileges that have been built up over the last decades. And I think inside the department, they're very cognizant of that. And so any move they make that could possibly have ramifications going forward, they're going to want to tamp down on and try to curb that as much as possible. I think you are 100% right on that. There are certainly people in the department who care more about executive privilege than just about anything else. I would just say it is a ridiculous, ridiculous position for anyone in the Department of Justice to care more about executive privilege than the current sitting executive himself, the president of the United States. But that does happen. I remember many conversations in the department with people inside OLC talking about preserving positions and me pointing out that 
the sitting president back then had the opposite position of them. And in fact, we ought to respect that in an appropriate way. So I think you're right. But I just come back to I would hope the political leadership at the department would look at the case, setting aside Andrew's questions about doing it while a potential civil proceeding is still unfolding. Although I'm not sure there is one right now. Well, what about the Trump case now? Yeah, but that's just for documents, right? It's executive privilege claim, though. It's an executive privilege claim over the documents that the committee has requested from the archives. I do not believe former president has officially tried to assert executive privilege over Steve Bannon's testimony. He's not gone to court to quash the subpoena. He didn't send a letter to the committee. All you have is Bannon out there making this claim. And so I think you're in a pretty strong position to go forward with a case if they want to do so. Speaking of executive privilege and ridiculous positions, what did you guys make of Jeff Clark going up to Congress today and asserting executive privilege when Trump has not asserted it himself? I mean, that's what he told reporters in January, too. So it didn't necessarily (laughs) surprise me. About Jeff Clark, yeah. He couldn't comment to us or help explain what had happened because of executive privilege. Has about as much merit as the other positions he's taken. (laughs) 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 This is just a fancy way of saying I'm asserting the Fifth Amendment. That's a very interesting point. And of course, he went up to do it. I think both he, Eastman, they're in tricky positions because it's not just about criminal exposure. It's about reputational harm. People are talking to the committee who are pillorying them, and they have to somehow, I think, try to parry that just so they can get a job in the town. All right. It is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. Today's spirited debate asks, to decant or not to decant? That is the question. And the short answer is yes. But when should you decant? First off, what is it? Decanting is the process of slowly pouring liquid, in this case wine, from one container to another without disturbing the sediment at the bottom. It is important to separate the wine from the sediment if there is a lot of it because the sediment can dampen the aromas and flavors in your glass. Decanting wine also helps the wine to aerate, which is the process of introducing oxygen to the liquid. No doubt you've heard or even said the phrase, let the wine breathe. Well, that's what decanting does best, allowing those aromas to expand while making the wine more flavorful and balanced. And it's never a bad idea to decant a young, bold wine. In fact, at Total Wine & More, our guides recommend allowing an hour or two for the process to work best. This is not advisable for mature wines that just need to be separated from their sediment. Leaving a mature wine in a decanter for too long could cause flavors to become muted from too much aeration. Remember to taste your wine while decanting to be sure it is not left aerating for too long. And don't forget, the younger and more closed the flavors are when you open the wine, the more it will benefit from the decanting process. Even a few seconds of aeration or a quick swirl in your glass will do wonders to your favorite wine from Total Wine & More. However, the best rule of thumb is, whenever you can, decant. Taste and enjoy when it feels best to you. It's personal. Cheers. And remember, always think interesting, drink interesting. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right, 
let's actually get our hands dirty with some law enforcement policy here. So Lisa Monaco and Merrick Garland have been pretty active. Katie, you had a really great article last week about this global drug crackdown with 150 arrests, international seizures, 30 plus million in cash and cryptocurrencies. I wanted to focus on the kind of dark web aspect of it. So how big and novel a deal is this in terms of the proliferation of drug sales on the dark web? Yeah, so I think part of the reason why the department played this up so much as an announcement is because they wanted to send a public message saying, we can now treat the dark web like we treat any crime scene. And we are able to infiltrate it, figure out who the players are, track them down, and trace them back to their own accomplices and customers and sources of funds, just like we would any case pre-internet and pre-cryptocurrency. They were sort of trying to debunk this idea that the internet is an impenetrable haven for criminal activity. So this is, to my mind, a little penny-wise, pound-foolish. Normally, when you have a means of detecting crime, like a source You do not give that up. And it it is definitely prior to this administration that people were able to get to the tour, the the, the so-called onion router, and to have sophisticated means of tracking criminals down who think that they are not capable of being monitored. When I was in the government, that was sort of manna from heaven. There's nothing better than somebody who's using a means of communication that they think is going to not be intercepted, but in fact, we could because you can actually detect and prosecute. And usually you want to protect that source, not get on a megaphone and announce it. So to me, it was a bit curious to Katie's point as to why you would publicize this one so much. More than curious, almost thin-skinned. I think they were really kind of embarrassed at the colonial... I mean, Monaco actually says, if you come after us, we'll come after you. They're almost making it personal. Since so much of this is happening also through the Postal Service, there is a way in which cracking down on this kind of activity is incredibly difficult. Some would argue nearly impossible to make a true dent, but the department does seem to feel the need to use enforcement to try to obscure that, sort of in the same way that actually tamping down on or curtaining or pushing back on China is also in many ways very impossible. So the department has like the China initiative and it goes really big on certain cases to try to obscure the fact that this is a problem that enforcement actually can't solve. I don't think they do it because like big pictures, they know they can't solve it. So this is sort of, I don't think they think that way. I just have never heard that kind of thinking. But I do think that there can be people who want to publicize some short-term win or being tough on crime, which may not be necessarily the best thing from a law enforcement perspective. And I'll give you an example from my time there, which was, it's not a one-sided black and white issue, but we did the Volkswagen case. I was super proud of it. The Detroit office was great. Fraud section grade, the environmental division, just everyone did, I thought, a phenomenal job. But one of the issues was we knew that in that case, the civil component and going after individual executives was the key. The criminal liability for the company, you knew that going out of the gate that that was going to happen. But 
many of the German executives were publicly indicted. Now, that does have some law enforcement interest, but there would have been another way to do that, which was to indict them, keep it under seal, because those people travel. We're not dealing with Russian oligarchs or, you know, a Constantine Kalimnik. We're dealing with people who actually travel. And so there was some opportunity to actually have them come here and be held accountable. And so that is a tension in terms of having a public announcement, which can have a law enforcement interest, just to be clear, I'm not saying it's improper, but you don't want the concern of just looking like you did something tough when you might actually not get that credit, but actually be acting tougher if you do the indictment under seal and wait until those people cross the border and can be extradited. Okay, one more policy announcement I just wanted to touch on, again from Lisa Monaco, announcing new policies to combat corporate crime. Or are they new? It it seems to me it more or less reinstates the 2015 Sally Yates memo. So I wanted to ask, do you agree? And to the extent we've been through this before, did it work to change corporate behavior then? I think the proof in this is going to be in what the department does the next few years. I will say I'm not skeptical that they will increase their focus on it. I'm skeptical that it will yield different results. The only way the department, I think, long term can really increase the way it polices white collar crime and increased corporate enforcement is to shift the way they spend money at the FBI and the way they spend money at the department. The department gets a certain amount of resources every year since 9-11. It's not a majority of those resources, but a large amount of those resources have been funneled into national security cases. I think at the detriment initially of white collar cases, that balance has never gone back to what it was pre-9-11. Maybe it shouldn't. I'm not saying necessarily that it should. But I think until the department asks for and gets more resources from Congress to just spend time investigating more cases, I'm always skeptical that any one new memo from a new deputy attorney general picking up on a memo that previous DAGs have sent is going to make a huge impact. I generally took this as an area that I obviously was quite steeped in, that this was sort of old wine in old bottles. (laughs) New label. I, I agreed with a lot of this, I mean, it obviously was reinstituting a lot of things that were in place when I was there or I actually promulgate. And I think a lot of that was good. I have to say, in fairness, I was annoyed with the idea that it, one of the new ideas that would somehow make a difference was that an FBI squad would now sit in a different location. Because first of all, those FBI agents, in fact, did have offices at DOJ. And I just thought, That is just not anything meaningful. And I'm a big believer in complete transparency and no spinning from the department. And so let's just say that wasn't the finest moment in terms of trying to say that they're doing something different. There were other aspects of the memo that I thought were more laudatory. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are important in the news. Today's topic is the First Amendment rights of public school students. And to explain them to us, we are thrilled to be able to welcome Julianne Nicholson, an actress with an illustrious career in movies and television. She is best known for her roles in August, Osage County, 
and Law and Order, Criminal Intent. And most recently, she's appeared in the limited series Mayor of Easttown on HBO, for which she won, yes, a Primetime Emmy Award. I give you Julianne Nicholson on the First Amendment rights of students. The Supreme Court has emphasized two competing principles that govern cases involving free speech and public school students. On the one hand, students retain First Amendment rights in principle. On the other hand, the court permits suppression of speech as necessary to legitimate discipline of safety concerns. The foundational Supreme Court case governing student First Amendment rights is Tinker v. Des Moines, decided in 1969 at a time of rampant anti-Vietnam War sentiment among students. A 13-year-old wore a black armband to her public junior high school in protest of the war. The school board preemptively prohibited the armbands and suspended Tinker. The court held that she was entitled to wear the armband and should not have been suspended for it, reasoning, famously, that students do not shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. But since then, the court, in a series of cases, has permitted school administrators to discipline certain speech in order to maintain order and safety. In the 1988 case of Hazelwood v. Kuhlmeyer, the court held that a school could ban articles about teen pregnancy and divorce in the student newspaper because the student newspaper is not considered a public forum and the school had a legitimate interest in preventing inappropriate articles. In Morse v. Frederick, a high school in Juneau, Alaska, allowed its students to leave campus and cross the street to cheer on the 2002 Olympic torch relay. The principal proceeded to suspend a student for displaying a banner that read, Bong Hits for Jesus, at the parade. The court found that the suspension was not unconstitutional because the incident occurred at a school event and there was a legitimate interest in preventing the supposed promotion of illegal drug use. Finally, we have Mahanoy, a case from earlier this year. A high school student posted a Snapchat disparaging the varsity cheerleading squad after she didn't make the team. Although the post was privately shared, a screenshot found its way to school administrators who then suspended the student from future participation in cheerleading based on the rationale that the post violated a school rule prohibiting profanity. This despite the fact that the incident took place off campus and on a weekend. The court ultimately decided with the student, finding that the school overstepped. However, it also expressed that schools could have a legitimate interest in off-campus speech under certain circumstances though it left those circumstances fairly murky. Thus, the issue of student speech continues to evolve as schools move from crowded buildings to Zoom rooms, and social media maintains its foothold on modern interactions. For Talking Feds, I'm Julianne Nicholson. Thank you very much, Julianne Nicholson, for spelling out the details of First Amendment protections, or lack thereof, for public school students. Julianne supports an amazing organization called Too Young to Wed, an Afghanistan emergency initiative that has helped secure the evacuation of nearly 500 high-risk Afghans. You can find out more about them at Too Young to Wed, all one word, tooyoungtowed.org. Equitable access to high-quality health care is a right for everyone. It's not a privilege for some. Our Health California is a grassroots advocacy community fighting for statewide and federal health policies that advance affordable care for everyone. 
With more than 1 million healthcare supporters, Our Health California educates patients, health enthusiasts, and voters about health and mental health care, then connects supporters with lawmakers to advocate for change. Since 2019, Our Health California advocates have sent more than 46,000 messages to their lawmakers and taken nearly 168,000 advocacy actions. Visit ourhealthcalifornia.org to join and make your voice heard. It's free. Again, that's ourhealthcalifornia.org. All right. We have a few minutes. I wanted to talk about, speaking of old wine and old bottles, John Durham, whom Bill Barr appointed to investigate the FBI's investigation of the Trump campaign and then made a special counsel under DOJ regs. He brought charges last week against a Washington-based analyst from Russia, Igor Danchenko, on five felony counts of false statements. How to put this? You know, Durham hasn't exactly been lighting it up with proof of FBI impropriety in 2016, which was his charge. What is this case about and is it righteous? Oh, Andrew, we think you should speak first. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, we're coming to Michael Sussman. So, you know, that'll be your turn, Katie. It's hard to know whether this is righteous, but reading it and comparing it to Sussman, it's a whole lot more righteous than the Sussman case in that I still cannot understand the materiality, even if you assume everything in the Sussman charge, how that is material, leaving aside that it's completely inconsistent with what the department said in the Flynn case about materiality, which should have some force because there is a certain apples to apples idea here of why is materiality suddenly so expanded. Can you spell it out a little bit more? So the the lie here in theory is. So here the lie from Sussman is that he disclosed documents to my successor at the general counsel of the FBI. And the allegation is he was not forthright about who he represented at the time. Jim Baker, like any responsible FBI officer, is going to have to answer the following questions in the following way. Did it make any difference to you whether these documents fell from, like manna from heaven, were found in the gutter, were produced to you by your enemy or your friend in terms of whether they were going to have to be taken seriously or investigated? And the answer to that is going to be, this was a serious subject and it did not matter. I didn't care if my best friend or my worst enemy turned them over. It was completely immaterial, whether you were paid, unpaid, because this isn't just Sussman saying, trust me, I'm going to tell you information. He actually handed the documents over. So I do not understand how any alleged false statement about whether he was paid or who his client was changes in any way what the FBI was going to do with those. And I don't see how any FBI officer worth their salt is going to answer those questions any differently or could, consistent with their oath of office. If this was some minor, minor matter, You could imagine theoretically somebody saying, you know what, it carried some extra weight because of the credibility of the person and the source. That's not this situation. And to my mind, the question is whether this is going to somehow get teed up before trial, where a judge could say, 
to the prosecutor, do you have any other evidence? How are you going to prove this and have them have to say up front what their evidence would be? Because then you might be able to find as a matter of law that would not be sufficient. That issue seems different than the most recent charges. If those charges and they're just allegations are true, there doesn't seem to be the same concern about materiality. That sure seems right. And by the way, I can also add, it's not just the materiality, but the actual proof and substance, the statement itself, Baker sort of remembers, but it's made orally. It's not even clear he was saying this. So it does seem extraordinarily weak. Now, what could normally happen in a regular chain of command of the department is a supervisor would say, no, you can't bring this case. There is such a supervisor here under the special counsel reg. So Garland is in a position to countermand. We wouldn't have to fire Durham or whatever. Does everyone here take it as simply an impossibility for him to weed in Durham's garden that way, even if he's persuaded that Durham is acting unjustly or inconsistent with department policy and principles of federal prosecution. Just to be clear, in order to make the special counsel legal, he has to maintain supervisory responsibility and the special counsel has to conform to all department regulations. I know this from having litigated the issue of the constitutionality of these current special counsel rules. And It is necessary for the special counsel to be a subordinate officer. We used to joke with Director Mueller about how he was only a subordinate officer, (laughs) which, of course, he loved to no end. Durham does report to the attorney general and is necessary to this being a constitutional mechanism. Garland could certainly tamp down on this, but do you take it as a practical matter that anything like that with Durham is out of the question? He's just got to let him be a sort of fief of one. This is going to be a perfect question for Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's not out of the question, but I can assume he's made the decision that the cost of interfering is just too high, the political cost, and the political cost being just taking heat from Republicans that you don't want to take. And I think if you look at the the most recent indictment, I don't know if it's a righteous case or not, but it's at least a plausible indictment, unlike the Sussman one, which was just a dog of a case. And I assume that they decided not to prevent Durham from bringing it because they thought, well, it's not a great case. Not all the cases the department brings are great. And I suspect what Durham said is that he was bringing this case because he's trying to get Sussman to cooperate. I think what's happened with the Durham investigation, I think it started off... He and Barr really wanted, Barr's insistence first and then where Durham went, really wanted to find wrongdoing at the FBI and inside the intelligence community. And they sniffed around for a while and maybe they'll find something that he writes in a report, but they didn't find anything worthy of an indictment other than the one case they were referred by the inspector general. Matt, are you suggesting that they're going after process crimes? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. There's no such thing as a process crime. Andrew's showing his scars. Exactly. But... (laughs) (laughs) Where I think Durham is going now, if you look at these two cases, is they are trying to indict anyone they can who touched the effort to get the FBI to investigate from the outside. And so you've seen two already. There are some others, including some, I think, prominent names that he would very much like to indict that I don't think he'll be able to. And I think he's wanted Sussman to cooperate. And Sussman's not because I don't know if he has anything to say or not, but probably doesn't feel any real jeopardy given the strength of that case. And so I think that's where the investigation stands and that's where he's going to try to be going. And I don't disagree, actually. I'm just saying that I think what you want to do is pull back and look at 
what story Durham is telling in these two indictments. He is trying to tell the story of how the FBI was manipulated with the help of the press into opening up an investigation. And that Democrats, the media were kind of had, you know, so in the Danchenko indictment, I think it's interesting that he brings up the fact that there had been rumors that the guy had been a Russian operative, even though that's not part of the charges. But he just wants everybody to remember this guy may or may not have been spying for Russia as he was sprinkling all of Washington, D.C. with little bits of information that became the dossier that, oh, by the way, the media pushed out into the public eye just before the inauguration for really no good reason because it wasn't verifiable. You know what I mean? It's like he is trying to tell a story that Republicans forever thought was very important and that I think more and more people sort of apolitically are curious about too. That's an excellent point. He'll be able to tell it if it goes to trial. All right, we just have a minute left for our final Talking Five feature where we take a question from a listener and we all have to answer in five words or fewer. And today's question comes from a listener named Natalie. Natalie Ilnu, as we say in law enforcement, that's last name unknown. And it is, why doesn't the attorney general appoint a special counsel for the January 6th insurrection investigation? Five words or fewer, anybody. No truth that it's me. (laughs) (laughs) because he doesn't need one rebuilding trust in career prosecutors no conflict plus weissman unavailable all right we are out of time thank you very much to katie matt and andrew for returning for another quarterly review of the doj and thank you very much listeners for tuning in to talking feds If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where we have a lot of information of episodes past and future. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. We are, as you may know, in the midst of and at the end of a Talking Books feature with six different interviews with the authors of the most prominent books of the season and coming next week. The sixth and last in this season's Talking Books, American Happiness and Discontents with the great George Will. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate producer Olivia Henriksen, assistant producer Matt McArdle, sound engineering by Adam Macias. David Lieberman and Rosie Dawn Griffin are our contributing writers, production assistants by Ray Cohen Gilbert, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. Our consulting producers are Andrea Carla Michaels and Dustin Nels. Thanks very much to Emmy Award-winning actress Julianne Nicholson 
for explaining the First Amendment rights of public school students. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.